Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. You are teaching an undergraduate seminar about a play by William Shakespeare. The students are set to turn in a midterm essay assignment in a few weeks, so you have decided to model in class how an essay of literary criticism comes together. You open your laptop, the screen is projected in front of the class. As a class, you start to generate ideas, compile interesting passages from the play, even start to organize into something like a coherence. All of the class's observations, the good, the bad, and the implausible, all of it gets typed up in the digital assemblage. One student, disturbed by the uncertainty of our progress, raises their hand. But how will we know we've written something good? The students, some of whom had tuned out or seemed to participate mechanically, turn their attention to you, the teacher. Do you offer them a rubric? Do you offer them exemplary models? Do you ask if writing something good is ultimately the point? You repeat the question like a riddle to yourself. How will I know they've written something good? Maybe, just maybe, as Adar Nor Desai argues in a new book, This is an opportunity to hesitate when reproducing the hard-earned knowledge and norms of the expert or the professor, perhaps to even cultivate with students a critical rigor about how knowledge gets produced at all. Adar's brilliant new book, Blotted Lines, Early Modern English Literature and the Poetics of Discomposition, just published by Cornell University Press, has changed how I think about this teaching situation. Adar is professor of English at Bard College. He is one of the co-founders of the Experimental Humanities Collaborative Network, an international project that brings together practitioners working at the intersection of technology, social justice, and creative practice. Blotted Lines is his first monograph. Welcome to the show, Adar. It's such a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for having me. I'm honored that you invited me. First thing, can you briefly tell us the main argument of your book, Blotted Lines? Sure. And to simplify things, maybe I should first say that Blotted Lines has two main arguments, 
or rather a main argument and a central provocation, let's say. It argues that early modern English poets not only experienced, but even anticipated and celebrated discomposition as fundamental to the art of poetic composition. Discomposition, I propose, names both a loss of affective composure, such as by hesitation or frustration or anxiety, and it names a disruption of formal protocols of organization or order. By demonstrating how discomposition animated every phase of the writing process of early modern poetry from invention to revision to the moment where a poet decides to share their work with, with somebody else, uh, by forwarding these moments, the book uh, makes its central provocation that experiences of discomposition might be fruitfully integrated into how we teach writing in the literature classroom of the modern academy. I really want to bring poets' experiences writing from early modernity into conversation with students' experiences writing criticism in the modern classroom. Blotted Lines spins out some great ideas, and and they've inspired me to rethink and maybe course correct how I'm teaching early modern literature. We'll get into that in a second. But I'd like to ask you um, a, a sort of creative question. Is there a character in early modern literature, a character who is not a teacher and does not teach in the literary text um, that you think would be an outstanding teacher if um, put in the classroom, Um, whether or not they would be an outstandingly good or bad teacher? I'll leave that to you. This is such a fun question. And my first instinct is to note that there's so many bad teachers uh, across Shakespeare's plays. I think there is a kind of chip on a lot of poets' shoulders about the uh, teachers that they had in their grammar schools. Um, So there are a lot of pedants. And one outstandingly bad teacher, I think, that came immediately to mind is Polonius from Hamlet. Um, For all the reasons that teachers are bad, he's egotistical, he's uh, opaque in his intentions, um, likes the sound of his own voice um, more than others. But I think a more interesting question is who would a good teacher be? And I am racking my brain. um, And just for for the sake of so somebody like Raphael from Paradise Lost, the angel who comes and patiently explains to Adam um, and, and answers all of his questions to the best of his own ability. Somebody, but there's a lot of lecturing there. And so a, another character, like I think of Viola um, from Twelfth Night, um, not because she does any real teaching in the, the play, as I recall, but I, I always love the moment where after speaking with, with Festy the Clown, she reflects on how being a good fool requires its own kind of wit um, and is, uh, is full of labor as a wise man's art. And I just thought that is a kind of self-awareness and a uh, open-mindedness that I think makes for a good teacher that there are different kinds of skills involved in different parts of life. And, and just being attentive to the fact that even fooling around is a kind of skill that might be that needs nurturing um, suggests that she might be a pretty cool teacher. Oh, the, the, the idea of Viola as a teacher is really wonderful. I mean, she has a kind of interpersonal creativity, you know, responsiveness that's really cool. R- Raphael's fascinating. I, I was talking um, yesterday um, with Katie Cadu about Raphael. I mean, he's so interesting because he's self-consciously thinking about how to communicate to Adam, who doesn't have access to the same kinds of ideas that Raphael has as an angel. But he also speaks really um, 
kind of elliptically about some key points about the fruit. Like he, he sort of withholds some important details, you know, from, from Adam um, that, that would have been helpful. Maybe. Yeah. And <laughs> in, in the position of the teacher saying, and don't think about that. <laughs> it's also a kind of, kind of tricky one. Let's not think about those things and, and shutting down avenues of conversation. So maybe not the best, but yes, you're right. I think in modeling, sharing knowledge at the level of the person that you're trying to share it with is pretty pretty he does a pretty decent job yeah that's excellent that those mm-hmm. are wonderful answers i think um a lot of our listeners are probably writing a dissertation or advising a dissertation writer or revising a dissertation into a book project um, when i first met you in 2018 uh at the folger shakespeare library um you were revising your dissertation, um, turning it into a book, but I believe you ultimately decided to kind of start from scratch. Um, your first book project, I think, is only tenuously connected to your, your dissertation, if, I, if I'm correct. Um, how did you come to that decision? What was the challenge like? And what advice would you give to a dissertation writer or someone considering leaving their dissertation behind? So yeah, this is a I think a really important question for this book in particular. Um, so th- none of this book comes from my dissertation. Um, it's a completely different project, and but the research that I did on the dissertation didn't vanish. Um, it sort of informed how I framed questions for this book, and the the sort of foundation of knowledge about the early modern period, about poetics, certainly informs a lot of a lot of this book. I knew where to look, and I knew how to ask the right questions because of the work in the dissertation. So um, it it it's always with me in some ways. It was on the figure of the line in the early modern imagination. So it was very broad. Um, there was chapters on math and poetry and cartography. It was, it was almost, it was, it was too much. Um, this book, I decided to shift gears away from that project, mostly because I had gotten a job first as a visitor and then converted to tenure track at a small liberal arts college Bard, uh, where I was, teaching only undergraduates and the most of my students, especially in my Shakespeare courses were non-majors who were taking the Shakespeare course because they had to take a literature requirement. And um, these students asked questions that I thought were really generative for me because I, I didn't have great answers for them. How did these poets learn to write? What went into their decision-making? A lot of Bard students are creative writers, or it's one of our biggest majors on campus is written arts. And so they ask, where do they get their ideas, right? The, the, the sort of questions that get asked of every living poet. Um, and I found it strange that despite having a PhD in this material, I didn't have great answers, right? That he imitated is not, was not a sufficient answer or that he took stories from, from other texts. And so I, I, I wanted to answer those questions myself. And in the classroom, I was telling my students who are struggling with writing essays to, to think about who their audience is, what goals they want to accomplish. And so if I was asking them to think about the work their writing was doing in the world, I thought, it's even more important that I have answers to these questions of my own, or at least the beginnings of answers for the text that they were reading, right? It's all writing in the end of, at the end of the day. And if I wanted to teach writing better, I needed to have better answers to questions students had about the writers as writers. So um, in retrospect, while it might seem like brave or audacious for me to ditch the dissertation, um, I think it would have been more challenging to 
continue developing a project that didn't feel as urgent to me, right? That, the, that my whole heart wasn't invested in. Um, so in terms of ad- advice, um, I think for people writing dissertations, people thinking about the dissertation and, and turning it into a book, uh, or people just working on on projects of any, of any scope, um, I think when it starts feeling like an obligation, like this is what you, the, the path that you're set down on and you must complete it, um, Sometimes we have to do those obligatory things, but I, I, I've come to believe that it probably undermines the project of scholarship and criticism to feel like you have to do it. And there's a, a quote, a line from Ben Johnson's discoveries that I cite in the book that, that sort of became a motto for the book itself and also for my students. There is no statute of the kingdom bids you be a poet against your will. And what Johnson's getting at there is this kind of work cannot proceed under obligation and or uh, you can't and you can't force yourself to it beat not the poor desk I think the beginning of that quote goes and I think this beyond applies beyond the arts to humanistic work in general the, the heart the pleasure and the political urgency of the work that we do I think rests upon the fact that we exercise our own freedom in choosing to do it um, right the choice to pursue, a line of inquiry or to study something deeply. Um, I think it, it, it is an, is it is a practice of our own agency, um, and letting go of it for any reason, whether it is to, to meet a deadline or whatever seems to undermine the power that that work could do. And so sharing that perspective with students is, is also important, but I also think it's true of anyone writing a dissertation, like find a way to make it something that feels urgent to you. And I'm also hearing in your answer, like this reflection on what the literary critic is doing or what a work of literary criticism is doing. I mean, in some ways, our ideas are are always in conversation with the text that we're working with. Um, it's not simply an, a, um, an assertion of a literary critic's idea. That idea has to yield and concede to the, the words that are on the page, right? The, the text of Shakespeare, the text of Sidney. So in some ways, it's an act of um, ideation, idea conception, but also of negotiation, of conceding to the ideas of others, you know? Um, and so I, I'm also hearing that kind of in your answer, how, how the research is, um, maybe conceding is the wrong word, but responding to the, the environment in which you're teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a, uh, a book that I don't cite enough in my own book, um, but informed a lot of my thinking about, about specifically teaching poetry, uh, Louise Rosenblatt's reader text poem, I think is the title, but Rosenblatt's main sort of, um, understanding is that the poem, a poem is as, is of the poem as event. And she describes the encounter between reader and poem as transactional in that the poem stimulates certain ideas in the reader who then figures forth new ideas that the poem then checks in this reciprocal engagement. Um, and I, and I feel a responsibility to early modern poetics and what the poets themselves were telling me about writing um, in writing about them. Right. And I think that, that, that sense of responsibility is true for the work of scholarship and criticism in literary studies, especially Um, it, it would be strange to betray sort of the the poets in their, in their conception of their own work um, by shoehorning it into our ways of thinking about, 
about poetry um, or thinking about, like, about how Shakespeare thought about what school or education was for versus how we treat Shakespeare in our school system. That disparity, I think, inspires a lot of this book, too. And I think that's one of the the great strengths of this book. It comes out really in every page, the the way in which you're, you know, kind of advancing certain ideas about pedagogy, about the teaching of writing, but always um, really, to use your word, with a sense of responsibility for the primary text you're working with. Um, it, it really comes out um, well and really elegantly. It's a that's a difficult trick. That's a difficult trick. For sure. <laughs> it sure was. Um, your first chapter is about the riddle of style, which you brilliantly unwind as a kind of paradox. Um, why is it so hard for us to articulate what style is in the literature classroom, where we're discovering the style of other writers, or in the composition classroom, where we're helping students discover their own style? This is a great question, because the problem of style emerged to me as essential to the project of this book, even though I did not first associate it with the different phases of the writing process, which is what the book follows. But style really sits at the center of literary education in a lot of ways. And the way we talk about it, as you know, is is paradoxical because it names something both distinctive and it is also the name we give to those factors that make something imitable and therefore reproducible. Write something in the style of this is a way to say, copy the the features of this, while also saying this thing is distinctive. Um, so in, in, in terms of the classroom, I started thinking about style in really concrete terms, meaning in terms of specific practices that I want students to undertake, and I want them to think about as part of the writing process. So for when I want students to meet certain stylistic expectations, for example, such as matching the house style of academic literary criticism or observing a style guide for citations, I make it explicit that the exercise here is to imitate form and that imitation plays a role in all forms of writing and that failure to hit the target is not a failure in the class. It's the, the phrase that I use is is more knowledge about the target. Uh, if, if, if you try to imitate something and you don't quite nail it, you will get better in the second attempt because you will have received some feedback, um, right? Shooting an arrow and missing it. Now you have, you can control for wind in the next uh, attempt. So I decouple, I try to decouple for students when I want them to do something imitative, write a paragraph with this structure just so to show me that you can that you know what the expectations of a paragraph are um and then at other times i say i want you to do something wrong that feels wrong or outrageous and then try to defend that choice right in cultivating your own style i want you to shake free from cliche and the shackles of obligation or expectation and try to do something that you think doesn't make sense make an argument make a reading offer a claim or write this insight in a format that you think um, you wouldn't wouldn't be accepted by me, and then defend why you think it should be valued anyway, right? Um, I've had students, for example, write like graphic novel versions of their argument and say, "I want to submit this illustration with these captions." Um, so, in having these conversations about the difference between style as something that is a practice of imitation versus style as something that is a form of invention, I think clarifies 
the aspects of writing, not in terms of like free write versus editing, but in terms of the interrelation between when you are trying to meet a target, like a rhyme scheme, and the idea that might come forward because you're straining to fit a rhyme, right? Sometimes the rhyme that comes to your head changes the shape of the poem that follows because now you've lit upon a new idea that you didn't have full control over. Um, So in short, style becomes a way to encounter and I think reckon with correctness, Um, whether uh, correctness means meeting the standards of somebody else's expectations or matching what you feel and think as accurately as you can to your own vision. Um, And so imitation and invention sort of oscillate uh, as part of the writing practice. And eventually, hopefully with a lot of practice in both, they begin to converge. And style becomes a process of imitating one's own inventions, as Sydney says, as, as, as figuring forth our own ideas in forms that other people may be able to take up, um, fashioning a Cyrus that maybe get other Cyruses um, down the line. And you identified two terms that kind of mark those poles, right? Bodgery and, and patchwork, right? Mm-hmm. This analysis of uh, of George Gascoigne. I'm I'm a fan of George Gascoigne. Mm-hmm. Um, not read less and less every year. I think. Who was Gascoigne, and what does he have to say about style, about bodgery and patchwork? Yeah. So Gascoigne, um, I did not know very much about him until I began this book um, because, uh, yeah, he is he is read less and less. He's endlessly fascinating. Um, I think he was perhaps the most prominent poet of Elizabeth I's early reign. Um, he was active in the mid 1570s, um, sort of the precursor to the age of Sydney uh, and a, a model for a lot of poets in his wake. His rise to prominence was a little bit rocky. He had some scandalous patches uh, and his earliest published works were criticized for being libelous or scandalous or overly licentious um a hundred sundry flowers and the posies which is its reissued version supposedly uh uh cleansed of all its scandal as he matured as a poet and rose the ranks of the elizabethan court he ended up publishing the first guide to vernacular english poetics that we know of certain notes of instruction concerning the making of verse or rhyme in english and this is where i found him because the poets that I selected for the book were largely poets that I also saw as educators. Uh, Sydney Shakespeare, Southall Davis, uh, they're all in some way or another people that are trying to teach other people, which is why I was attracted to them. And Gascoigne, by writing the first sort of manual for poets in the English language that we know of, um, is is was a natural choice. And then as I read more of his work, I fell in love <laughs> with this, this, this strange contradictory man. Um, And what Gascoigne has to say about style is he, because he had these experiences with causing scandal and being called out for licentiousness, understood that there are certain excesses that will not be tolerated uh, in one's writing. But he was also very clearly, reading any amount of his poetry will reveal he has a restless mind. He could think of new ideas, new poems very quickly without much concern, perhaps for where he was going with his ideas. His most famous, I think most anthologous poem is Gascoigne's Woodsmanship, which is a poem in which he invents several different reasons for his own behavior over the course of the poem. Um, And so 
my sense of Gascoigne is that he understood that one had to imitate other people in order to meet the standards of society. And this, in this way, he understood that every piece of writing is always a sort of patchwork of other people's other influences. The problem was, if the seams of the patchwork show, it looks like what would be called bodgery, um, this sort of poor tailoring, this poor stitching together different patches that where people can tell that you're, you don't have full control over the thing that you're making. Um, he also understood that you couldn't just stitch together other people's words in order to make a poem. You had to add some fresh invention. Um, a pinch of salt, I think, is one of his phrases that he uses in certain notes of instruction. And he knew that this pinch of salt required a degree of strangeness. Strange decisions would gain attention, would snag the reader's attention. And you had to moderate that strangeness with a demonstration of your own decorousness, but the strangeness was important to the process of getting people to notice what kind of poet you were. This is how you become renowned and rise the ranks. You stand out from everybody, but not so much so that people pay too much attention to what you're doing and get offended. So for Gascoigne's style is this balancing act between strangeness and decorousness and this tension between these two imperatives. I think animates all of his writing and also is the problem that I think the rest of the book begins to explore. If I remember correctly, um, one of the, the theories behind Gascoigne's certain notes is that it was written as a kind of um, marketing ploy in order to earn 2Ds, right? Um, he, he wanted to uh, work as a professional tutor. So that um, treatise, which is about poetry writing, was in some ways um, a way of showing his wares as a teacher. You know, can you kind of imagine that writing scholarly books in order to um, solicit students, like how we would write differently, you know? Right. I mean, boggles, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, your second chapter is about Sydney's sonnet cycle, Astrophil and Stella. Um, the Philip Sydney's sonnets explicitly talk about the struggle to invent or the struggle within the concept of invention. Um, maybe we can read a passage from the chapter and talk about what you find uh, interesting about sure, Sydney. Yeah. Yeah, this this chapter was the hardest for me to write. I often describe it as my chapter that is indirectly about writer's block. Uh, and it took me a very long time to compose it. Um, but the, the core thing that I'm driving at in this chapter is that Sidney's sonnet cycle, as, long, as well as his defensive poesy, try to present poetic work as something that requires encounters with uncertainty and doubt and hesitation. And so I'll read um, this, this, this paragraph and uh, one of his sonnets that follows it, and I think gets at the heart of that moment of tension, that balancing act that Gascoigne is after, that animates all of Sidney's work and also many of the, the, the poet's work that I discuss in the rest of the book. So this is on page 86 of the book. In Astrophil and Stella, the scene of writing becomes a perpetual struggle between the poet's need to express and a fear of what others will think. Sidney knew that poetry had a dangerous edge, but he also felt that poesy's virtues derive from the poet's ability to set virtue and reason aside, at least temporarily. Though he cautioned, with a sword thou mayst kill thy father, he also conceded, and with a sword thou mayst defend thy prince and country. 
A newly conceived invention may become a benefit to society, but it may also threaten the very foundations of society. Analogizing poetry to such martial sports, Astrophil and Stella's scenes of writing are preoccupied with poets at once presuming a powerful capacity to conceive and internalizing how this presumption exposes them to dangerous error. Sometimes Astrophil feels as if he has been struck by a flash of inspiration. Stella behold, and then begin to indict, and that's from Sonnet 15. Other times he feels constrained, bottled up, and bound by fears of public humiliation, my youth doth waste, my knowledge brings forth toys. That's from Sonnet 18. Other times still, he feels simultaneously confident and impotent. My words, I know, do, do well set forth my mind. My mind bemoans his sense of inward smart. Such smart may pity claim of any heart. Her heart, sweetheart, is of no tiger's kind. And yet she hears, yet I no pity find. But more I cry, less grace, grace she doth impart. That's from Sonnet 44. Taken as a whole, the sequence does not allow Astrophil to settle on a poetic method. Sonnet 34 addresses these concerns directly, throwing Astrophil into the conflict between an appeal for grace and the disgracefulness of poetry itself. I should note before reading this poem that in it, Astrophil stages a conversation with himself. So it's a kind of call and response. And maybe I'll try to do the voices as I read it. Come, let me write. And to what end? To ease a burdened heart. How can words ease, which are the glasses of thy daily vexing care? Oft cruel fights well pictured forth do please. Art not ashamed to publish, th publish thy disease? Nay, that may breed my fame, it is so rare. But will not wise men think thy words fond wear? Then be they close, and so none shall displease. What idler thing, then, speak and not be heard? What harder thing than smart and not to speak? Peace, foolish wit, with wit my wit is marred. Thus, while I write, I, I doubt to write, and wreak my harms on ink's poor loss. Perhaps some find Stella's great powers that so confuse my mind. I chose this passage and this poem because it really captures, I think, the self-defeating argument that Sidney's having with himself about why write, what, what to write and why write poetry at all. And I love the line, thus write I while I doubt to write. Um, this idea of writing and unwriting at the same time, it really gets at what I mean by discomposition, this feeling of affective disturbance, even as you try, you soldier forth and try to try to do the thing, um, the thing is un unraveling in your hands. Um, yet he communicates that, he communicates the tension of writing while he doubts to write. Um, and at the heart of this chapter is an idea of invention rooted in the rhetorical tradition, which is all about debate. And one of the things I try to present Sidney's view as poetry as is, is a deliberative debate that he has with himself about what he should do. Um, and poetry as a means to argue with oneself without having to prove anything, um, but nevertheless reckoning with ideas and reckoning with one's own motivations um it's a reflective tool um i i, I one of the things that i write in my chapter that i'm proud of is that um stephen gossen wrote the school of abuse this sort of takedown of poetry um that he addressed to philip sydney who knows if philip sydney ever um directly responded or uh or Gosson, responded to gossen's work but I like the idea that Gossen brought this debate to Sydney's doorstep and Sydney took up the debate, but left Gossen aside. He said, I, I can handle this. I can handle both sides of this by myself. Um, 
and share my thinking with the world, and which is what he did. He became the sort of teacher of a generation of poets, but all the lessons he have he has to offer are anxious, doubtful um, ideas about what it means to write poetry in it at all. Yeah, I, I like the way you're sort of capturing this mood of, um, as you put it, simultaneously being confident and impotent, you know, the, just the sense of, of gr- growing in your powers as a poet, as a writer, as an imaginative thinker, but also um, having internalized the perspectives of like a wider public because I think that is part of being a writer is, is thinking how your work will be read, that it's um, deeply disempowering and just kind of living with that contradiction is, I think, part of being a writer. Yeah. Is that yeah, how you read it? Yeah. I think so. And it, and it chimes with um, this, this other line from Ben Johnson where he talks about strained and trying to reach beyond your capabilities as a poet, but also sticking close to what you are actually capable of. But one of the things Johnson cautions is even when you think you have got the the skill, when you've got the talent to do with the thing that you're trying to do, it's best to resist, resist the, the complacency, right? Poetry is a work of labor. Um, And if you're not, if it's coming too easily uh, or too impulsively, maybe check yourself. Um, And this is a, this is an interesting lesson, right? Um, a way of empowering the writer by reminding them they have the control they have, and the responsibility to stop themselves too, to think about what they're trying to achieve and whether what they're doing actually achieves that. So not being complacent either in hack work imitation or unfiltered expression that does not have any concern for the effect it has on the world. It's a poet's job to sort of navigate that, that terrain to, to venture forward courageously, but also with, with a kind of insecurity and doubt. It, it's kind of a wonderful um, defense of doubt, um, which is great to think about and contemplate. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your writing process. Um, having read uh, a passage from the book, um, how, how did that passage come together how do you go about um, revising or composing? Um, are there techniques? Are there ideals you have in writing? Uh, m- perhaps models for critical writing that you you treasure? Yeah, um, I think the hardest part of writing for me is streamlining. I tend to throw everything into a a document, all the quotes, all the passages, all, I keep a commonplace book where I, as I'm reading, I I note down every quotation that might be useful for me by hand. And then when you have those, you feel really compelled to use them, uh, like the cards in your deck or something that you want to flourish. Um, And so I have a hard time. And even in that paragraph, as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is kind of a long paragraph. Um, But part of that is just me. Um, and I think the, the excitement I have to share examples, I think comes through sometimes, but it is maybe some success, successful sometimes and not others. Um, that that's just, just, that's true to who I am, I guess. Um, but I, in, in that 
paragraph. And I think throughout the book, I really, I, I started thinking about, could I use this passage or this page as an example to my undergraduates? Right. I want to, the more, the more I thought about it, the more I realized when I assign academic criticism in my classes, students have a hard time with a lot of things. Right. Um, the, the, the most fundamental is the baseline knowledge that is accept, expected of every reader of historical context and all these. And, and undergraduates don't always have that. Um, and so there are things that writers do that maybe can help them along with signposting, with clearer topic sentences and things like that. So once I reflected on my own students' experiences of my paragraphs, I think my writing changed. I think it forced me to try and at least hit hit the ends of the paragraphs with with ideas or takeaways right and to introduce quotations and reflect back on them in a meaningful way um so there's a lot of close reading in this book um often just because i feel like when you introduce a quotation you have to honor it with with your commentary for it um and i want students to be able to not call me and say well you didn't do this and and on page 14 of your book um so it made me more responsible in some ways because I, I knew who I was being responsible to, um, to my own students and to, um, I imagine this book, the, the reader that I imagined was early career graduate students. I tried to write the book that I would have wanted to read as a graduate student entering my first comp class as a TA or, or whatever, and, and not knowing how to connect these early modern texts that I love to this context where students have all these other obligations and expectations. And so for that graduate student, there's a lot of context that still needs to be built. If I introduce a theoretical figure, I want to sort of situate that figure or at least explain why I'm doing it. Um, And I do that to varying degrees of success, I think, but um, remembering who I was as a early grad student helped me think about what I would have needed and what kinds of writing I responded to. So uh, obviously, I'm a big Jeff Dolvin fan. The whole book is sort of <laughs> following in his footsteps so, in some yeah. ways. Um, yeah. But um, I, I also, uh, the book was blessed to have Wendy Beth Hyman look over early drafts of it, who's a scholar that I think is just really um, singular in how how her work is so dazzling, dazzlingly erudite, but also written with such verve and clarity. Um, and so having her eye on this was, was a real gift to this book. Um, yeah, absolutely. yeah. So in, in remembering at some point as I was drafting chapters and sending them along to Wendy um, and also to my advisors, Raina Callis and Jenny Mann, like they're going to read this. And so um, I want them to be able to grapple with the ideas and not get lost in the weeds of all of the research that I did. Um, and so how do I, how do I try to impress them while keeping it at a red, red register for um, for the first year graduate student? Um, these these questions drove some of that doubt that Sydney describes. Like, who is this for, and are, is is this decision actually serving anybody other than yourself? Um, that, that's why that chapter took a long time, <laughs> and why the book became this meta reflection on the anxieties of the writing process. Well, I, I love the the idea that the classroom can be a space for like unpacking our own assumptions about professionalization or, or intellectual production, knowledge production. Um, 
Yeah, excellent. Um, in your chapter on revision, you write, quote, which is about um, John Davies of Hereford, quote, the approachably mediocre John Davies of Hereford, a poet who knew his limitations, but also recognized his own potential, may become a new sort of hero for the work of writing in the literature classroom, end quote. What might John Davies be uh, an exemplar for, for us scribbling away in 2023? Yeah, so... Davies or Davis, I, I I say Davies, but I'm pretty sure it is Davis. Um, he became my personal hero as I was writing this book because in his work, I found the most clear pictures of the scene of writing that I that I'd seen yet or have yet to see in early modern literature. I wanted, when I began the project, I want to see the poet at their table writing, right? Sidney writes Astrophil trying, depicts him, but that's a representation of a character. Davies gives us in a lot of his writings, accounts of him at home in bed, scribbling away, trying to, trying to make it as a poet. Uh, and he does this because uh, John Davies of Hereford was a writing master. He was one of the foremost premier teachers of handwriting, that's what a writing master was, of his age. And so his job was teaching people how to compose and ornate scripts. Um, and he wrote a, a guide on, on, on fair writing in which he describes how you hold your pen and how you prepare your ink and where it should be positioned. So he has all these material details about the work of writing. And he moonlighted uh, quite literally as a poet. He tried to um, make a name for himself as a poet, and he continuously reflected on how he was not quite at the level of people like Johnson or Dunn uh, or Sir John Davies, his namesake. He has a great poem directed at the more famous and noble person, Sir John Davies, um, explaining we have the same name, but our fortunes are pretty different, and it's kind of an honor just to be in the same breath as you. Um, I think he is an exemplar for us. I think he's a he's a hero for my classroom because he foregrounds the material conditions both in the in the literal sense of ink, paper, tables, the bedroom in the bed in which he wrote in, the material conditions of writing in that sense and the fact that he was not born nobly, he did not have the resources or the time to make a name for himself, that making a name for oneself in this age required connections, um, a certain class position. And so he he has some great poems where he sort of talks about the difference between wealth and wit um, and how it's easy to mistake wit for wealth and the other way around um, if, if we're just relying on what other people have to say uh, about our poems. And so he talks a lot about not having enough time um, in order to prepare and share his work, not having the the resources of leisure to do this. And in that way, in, in, in stripping writing down to just what it means to think of writing as labor, I think is illuminating for students. It, it forced me to think about students' labor conditions in my classroom, the kinds of time strictures and material strictures that are on their access to literary work and 
how my classroom could create space for that, how I could prioritize the fact that there's no statute in the kingdom that bids you be a poet. And in fact, it seems like most of the statutes of our kingdom prohibit <laughs> the idle work of poetry uh, and artistic production. And so how to create and empower the classroom as this safe enclave of leisure where people can choose to invest energy in, into their into creative endeavors in the way that Davies would stay up at night scribbling uh, on his on his papers and, and writing about it, hoping somebody in the future might take them up. Yes, I can see how the material conditions of writing, as Davies is exploring, um, is, is an important aspect for students, and I can see how they would respond to that. Um, and also just this this um, feeling that there is this precursor, you know, this other John Davies out there that is a more successful writer than you are, uh, kind of interesting doppelganger kind of dilemma. Um, I want to turn to the fourth chapter, which is on um, Anne Southwell, who is a complicated case test. Southwell complicates the idea of autonomous originality and authority this sort of cult of the author, how might the collaborative nature of Southwell's poetic composition help us rethink the writing and and publishing process? Yeah. So, um, so that was a really interesting figure for me, not because um, she is singular as a poet, but actually because I think she, gives a clear insight into how most poets went about their work in this period. Um, not just women writers, but all writers. Um, so to maybe to get some context, Southwell's poems are almost entirely located in two volumes. Um, and the one that I worked with is a commonplace book, or it's called a commonplace book, the Sibthorpe Southwell commonplace book, which is housed at the Folger Shakespeare library. And it is a book that contains, uh, transcriptions of some of her poems, some poems by other figures, um, some household uh, inventories, and uh, some letters that she wrote to her friends uh, and acquaintances. They're all part of this this book together, and most of the materials are in the hand of a household scribe and not Southall's own. Um, but there are little edits made in her scratchy, un- less trained hand, and there are some drafts that are tipped in to this this book that are in her hand, um, and so we can see her intervening upon the poems that are written in her name. The book is sort of titled on its on its first page of works of Anne Southall. What's particularly complicated about this book is that the first couple of poems are. Uh, listed under the works of Anselmo are poems by other people, which is a common practice um, in in miscellanies of this era. But throughout the book, Southall will add her own poems alongside other poems by people um, that she knew um, or make additions to existing poems. And I don't think she was unique in this. In fact, I know that she wasn't unique in this. This is how people use poetry in the era. They use poetry as a platform for social engagement, whether it was directly as by sending verse epistles to one another or even collaborating, uh, asking for advice as, as Ben Johnson writes about asking John Donne to mark up his poems uh, as a sort of trusted advisor. Um, but also like across time, 
um, Subtle taking up other poets' work and using it to think about issues or, or concerns that she has. Um, and so I think this image of the work writing can do and why people turn to it in the early modern era needs to be put alongside the idea of here's William Shakespeare having brilliant flashes of insight about the nature of desire and sharing them with the world. Um, there are many reasons poets wrote poems, and I don't want to suggest that, there, that there's a homogene, homogeneity to how writing happened, but I think especially for students, it's important to see that writing was a social process, that it was an act of trust and care and 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 community in a lot of ways. And so Southall's book, which is poems that she borrowed from other people, poem that she, poems that she wrote by herself, transcribed by her household scribes. And then in the most, I think, amazing aspects of this book, there is marginalia where she's being given advice by her husband, we know, to change the rhyme scheme. My favorite page of this book has a little marginalia that says, wife, life, too oft. And this is in her husband's hand. And then on the same page, we see Subtle scratching out in her hand, in her scratchy hand, scratching out some lines of poetry because they end in wife and life. The rhyme was used too often and she replaces them with duty and beauty, which is a rhyme that she also uses too often. But we see the sort of thing that you might see on a student paper. You're using this word too often or right. Like just, just this, this advice from a trusted interlocutor turning into the poetic process and we can see it on the page. And so having students glimpse that it's not just that poets in this era revise, but for them, writing was this opportunity to think about aesthetics, about theology, about any kinds of ideas with other people. And this is the way that they, that you do it. You, you create something and you let somebody else engage with it. It's an important, I think, crucial message for the college classroom that we are here to work on this thing together um, and not... I'm going to evaluate you for the one thing that you did. And that'll be the mark that you make on the world for all time. Um, that actually leads into um, something that Kathleen Fitzpatrick has talked about um, generous in, in her book, generous thinking. I think both of us have been deeply influenced by Fitzpatrick's book. Um, I was moved by your discussion of generous thinking in the literature classroom in that the chapter that we were just discussing on Subtle. Um, talk us through what you think the stakes for generous thinking in the, the Shakespeare or the early modern um, literature classroom. What are, what are the stakes of generous thinking and what might generous thinking look like? Yeah. So one of the ways I started thinking about how do I teach this material to students that either arrive with too much reverence for it to be able to critically engage with it or an aversion to the canonical history and um, this long demonstration of imperial power that these texts represent, right? There, this, is, this is always going to be part of the conversation that we need to have in our classrooms. And I, more and more over my time at Bard, I, I thought, how can this classroom not be about Shakespeare, but what, but about giving students an experience of 
importance at the level of somebody like Shakespeare. One of the things I try to teach my students is Shakespeare had help in becoming Shakespeare, not just by uh, the editors of the compilers of the first folio and the generations of editors that tweaked and changed and reformatted his work for, for different generations of readers, but also the globalization project of the British military, right? Like there's a lot of help to get him to where he was. And part of that was regarding his writings as sacred objects um, and protecting and defending them. I thought, well, there will never be another Shakespeare in that way. And it's, it's an absurdity that he exists in this, in this etcher at all. But what would it mean to allow students to believe that their writing was sacred, that their writing would be defended by the people that 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 picked that took it up, that it was important in that mode. And so that that created that, that led me to Kathleen Fitzpatrick and her sort of critique of individualism as a driving force of the academy, right? Like one of the problems with Shakespeare's singularity is that it reinforces the idea that there are some geniuses and that there's everybody else. Um, and so if I'm treating everybody's work as at that level, if I'm trying to give students the care in uh, that I give to students writing the care that I give to a poem by Shakespeare, um, what does that look like? And it means primarily asking a lot of questions, genuinely trying to make time to talk about their writing and trying to clarify why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and allowing them to help each other, allowing them to see that when they go home to write their assignments, what they're coming back to is a community of other people undertaking a similar task and trying their best to get better at it. Um, and so this looks a lot like turning down the number of assignments I ask students to do so that there's more time to meet with me, uh, either in class time um, or with each other in class to talk about writing, creating time in class to do that work. So it's not homework. It's as important to work on our writing as it is to think about these early modern texts, really giving them the gift of time and attention um, and taking their ideas seriously, uh, undermining the idea that we all need to make arguments and more that we're testing out things together and that other people's voices might actually help us improve our ideas too. Um, so that was kind of a rambling answer, but it, 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 at the heart of it, of my, of my practice is like what Shakespeare in claiming this position and me teaching Shakespeare as with the privilege of a professor teaching literary text, what can I give, right? What, what can I offer to students they would not get? And at the heart of it is, time and attention that they would not get elsewhere. That's excellent. Um, in your uh, chapter on Subtle, you talk about a classroom exercise based on editions of Subtle's poetry. And one of the goals is to show students how fraught the modern editing of early modern poetry is. Can you talk us through that exercise? Yeah, so I've only done this a couple of times, but it's been really fun both times. And the exercise hinges on sharing a page of this manuscript commonplace book with students, which I know that they will not be able to read because it's in secretary hand. Um, but it is a uh, unattributed transcription of 
uh, a poem by Walter Raleigh, The Lie, which is a very famous poem from the era of often uh, uh, in commonplace books and miscellanies. Um, what's interesting about the version in Fevel's commonplace book is that she adds uh, verses to the end of it. She adds her own stanzas and signs them with her own name in her own hand at the bottom. And she makes some changes and edits to his stanzas. And we don't know if those changes are hers or from the copy that she was copying from somebody else. Um, but it's this interesting demonstration of a poetic conversation, right? Um, I can show students Marlowe's passionate shepherd and then Dunn's response and Raleigh's response, right? But alongside that, I can show them, here's this conversation happening in one person's book that's maybe not even for anybody else other than themselves. And I present them this page. Then I present them Gene Clean's modern, modern democratic transcription of it so they can read what's going on. But it makes its own decisions as to how to share and demarcate what was Southerl's and what was Raleigh's, um, right? And then I share uh, modern editions of like the few copies of places where people have anthologized Southerl's work. And they, of course, don't include this because most of it is Walter Raleigh's. And so here's poetic work that she did that is modernized only in this single edition by Jean Clean that is not for a public readership. And so I give students the challenge of what would it mean to share this with students? How would you include this in say the Norton anthology of literature? What would it look like and what decisions would you make to share what Southerl is doing here? Um, would you include the whole poem? Would you just include hers and attribute the rally poem somewhere else? Um, it's an interesting set of problems, but, um, and I don't know if I have a good solution to this, but students are then thinking about what a poem was for, where originality comes from, how how to present conversations rather than individual voices as part of literary history. Um, and so some students take the cue and see, oh, Subtle is writing, she's putting Raleigh in a miscellany and adding her own verses. I'm going to put Subtle in a miscellany and add my own verses because what we're showing here is a conversation and maybe the, the most true to the representation of, of poetry that we're seeing here is that I need to add some of my own. And so they copy the form and meter and try to write their own verses to lie, to show not Subtle or Raleigh's work, but the poetic exchange. So it catalyzes these interesting conversations and really changes how they view the Norton or how they view any sort of published poetry as, as, as something that has multiple hands perhaps and multiple voices. There are good conversations like the one we're having right now. And then there are bad conversations. <laughs> and your fifth char- chapter is kind of is about Shakespeare and the art of conversation. You quote from early moderns who rightly identify the pitfalls of the of the bad conversationalists as um, boorishness, self-aggrandizement. And you make the claim that the social sphere of the theater was important to sharpen one's conversational talents. Um, According to the early moderns, how is theater as an art form different from or parallel to or similar to conversation as an art form? Yeah, so this this chapter started with me trying to figure out a way to write about anxiety students have about sharing their work, about perfectionism and... Uh, uh, what I came to term performance anxiety. And it, and it 
started and I and I it sort of clicked together once I revisited Shakespeare's Sonnet 23 uh, as an unperfect actor on the stage who with his fears put besides his part, right? This is a poem in which he describes the lover trying to speak to uh, his beloved as some, like an actor who forgot his lines, turning to writing in order to try to communicate what he could not perform as a perfect ceremony of love's Right. And that word, the perfect ceremony, became something that I snagged on. And I turned, I looked around Shakespeare's entire oeuvre to think about like how he is thinking about perfectness, perfectionism. Um, and I landed on Love's Labor's Lost. And this is a play about a bunch of scholars and pedants who have a hard time talking to women. Um, and there's scenes of theatrical performance in there. And so... I see the play as a key to thinking about how early moderns thought about theater, how how practicing theater professionals thought about the encounter with the audience on opening night, um, because there's scenes in the play of a prologue stepping forward and the audience turning their backs to him and he him falling out of his part. Um, and this is juxtaposed or put right alongside scenes of courtiers trying to share their, their love speech but because they're, it's all canned dialogue, and they're they're speaking with taffeta phrases and and highfalutin terms. They're it's just not working, and so I wanted to use this this highly charged theatrical moment of stage fright and and audience indifference as a way to help students think about sharing writing not as a performance in the sense of something that will be evaluated, but as a live thing as a possible an opportunity for interaction rather than conclusion um and so i think early moderns thought about theater as different from conversation because theater came with the baggage that you you are prescripted you arrive with things to say and a, a plan in your head whereas conversation it's meant to be open um and something where you give the occasion in, in Francis Bacon's terms to your interlocutors. It's something where you are as attentive to them as you want them to be to you. And you're, you don't arrive with an agenda um, or canned lines to speak. And it's hard. It's impossible to teach somebody to do that. Um, but one of the things that I think theater professionals and Shakespeare in particular noticed is that theater is a place where you can watch dialogues happen and see <laughs> bad conversationalists, right? You can see the the gentleman of, of Navarre being boorish to the ladies and to the performers on stage at the end of that play. They, they, um, they're obnoxious and it could be played for laughs, but I think it sort of misses the fact that they're just being jerks and not listening and not attending. It's, I think it's conspicuous that the women on stage who are watching the performance of the nine worthies at the end of love is lost are grateful for it. And, and generally um, uh, gracious, whereas the men are boors and then the play ends with them being told you need to learn how to talk to people. <laughs> you need to go visit the sick and make them smile rather than yourself. Right. Um, this lesson in seeing acts of communication as requiring a sense of liveness, a sense of possibility and openness and, and, removing the sense that you're always being evaluated and needing to evaluate other people from that encounter. Um, yeah, that it, it's kind of a, 
a whirlwind tour <laughs> of conversation and theater and, and writing. Um, but at the heart of it, this chapter thinks about what makes us anxious is over preparation as a way to sort of compensate for a fear of rejection. Um, and by naming it, maybe classroom spaces can diffuse some of that anxiety so that we can move on to richer conversations. Yeah. And I see you, um, the kind of ethos of um, good conversation in your writing style, you know, in the passage that you read, read from the Sydney chapter earlier, one of the things I really admired was you did some sort of processing, you know, some summary. This is a thing that we see in Sydney sonnets frequently, but then you gave quotes, you know, you gave like really well-selected nuggets. And so I, I read that as an act of generosity as like, let me, you know, let's look at this passage together. You might have a different reading or you might be able to marshal evidence, you know, have your own perspective as, um, yeah, as, as a, a, a great exemplification of what um, conversationalism in academic writing can look like. Um, maybe briefly we can talk about the Experimental Humanities Collaborative Network. Um, this is something you uh, co-founded um, what is it, and uh, how might someone who's interested in the intersection of technology, social justice, and creative practice get involved with it? Yeah. Um, and so the Experimental Humanities Collaborative Network um, is an initiative that I started with two of my colleagues, Krista Caballero and Maria Ciceri, in 2019, right before the start of the pandemic. And it is funded by the Open Society University Network, um, which is uh, funded by the Open Society Foundations as this platform for humanists at universities and colleges around the world um, to think about the intersection of media, technology, and the humanities. So we have partners in uh, Berlin, in Palestine, in London, um, in Colombia, uh, ASU is a partner, um, Hampton College. In, um, and so what we do and what we designed it to be is really a, an interdisciplinary protected space for scholars to brainstorm ways to bring the humanities into the public conversation more meaningfully and in these wildly different contexts. Um, a lot of what we do is is, is grants, is, is is funding small scale and large scale projects that um, allow people to bring their particular expertises and their connection to local communities into conversation with one another. One of our big projects is, is called To Be Named. Uh, it's about the cultural politics of naming and they'll, it's a roving art exhibit uh, exhibition that will move between different continents. And uh, it talks about, um, for example, children in Palestine who are named after streets that they can no longer go back to that have been replaced with new street names and um, gender identity, right? And, and um, the change and changing names uh, to suit your, your gender identity. Um, but also, and yeah, changes on, on maps in different parts of the world um, and indigenous place names in the United States. So all of these people invested in this, this topic, this core sort of topic in, in, in um, sort of, everyone's social life to, to stage and create artworks together um, to communicate with one another uh, to have students 
talk to each other um, about their names, um, which is one of the most heartening things that we did. We just had students share the story of their name with students from around the world. Um, so it, 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 it is a project-driven initiative that largely tries to think about what it means to do humanities as projects. And a lot of it is spending time together and learning from other people without a necessarily a product at the at the output of it, right? The product is the art exhibition, um, but it could also be um, a series of letters, a series of conversations that are recorded in some way, um, just, just recognizing that humanistic work to, operates on a different time scale than other things. And a lot of a lot of what it requires is experimentation in the artistic sense rather than necessarily in just a scientific sense that um, artistic experiments are things that you try out and you don't know how they're going to go, um, but the virtue is in trying them. Um, so you can find out more about this initiative and all of our strange projects at ehcn.bar.edu. Um, and we're always looking for new collaborators, new interlocutors, people doing interesting work where they connect concepts or or uh, practices from humanistic inquiry to the public. All right, we have a, a, str- a strong focus on engaging with local communities, getting students into the environments that their universities or are, uh, are, are situated in or where they come from, and using that as a basis for thinking through big big questions that other people are thinking about like about ecology about political migration uh, politics and migration um thinking about the future of work and ai uh, it's something that we're, we're we've been doing a lot recently yeah now that blotted lines is out what's next on the horizon uh are you working on a new scholarly project yeah so i'll give it just a little bit of a teaser i i, I wanted to think about writing criticism as 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 a as a next step as in tracing the history of critical writing, and so I'm starting a project tentatively titled "Block Quoting Shakespeare," which really just drills into when scholars and critics started quoting as evidence from literary texts from the of the, the era of the late 17th century. Um, so thinking about the practices of block quoting and making arguments about literary texts. Um, so this project is, is slowly taking shape and I want to really just help students understand what it means to use somebody else's words in your own writing. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for your time, Adar. Thank you. It's a pleasure.